This is Paris. This is Chuck T. This is Flavor Flay, boy. And you're in tune to the Tone Master on 91.1 FM, WGDR. Plainfield. We're going to change the system. Think about it. Stand by, baby. Please, stand by. And that's the way it was. That's the way it is. And it's always changing and it is always the same. How's that for psychedelic? We are all seekers after truth. This, this... This is a special magic. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I am a traveler. A wanderer. And it's always changing and it is always the same. The same. Yo, 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 check it out. Check it out. The world is listening. Say what I think. Say what I think. Say what I think. I'm a complete individualist. Complete individualist. I'm against communism, capitalism, fascism, Nazism. I'm against everything and I've often wondered what it would be like to be happy 24 hours a day. My guest today is Tracy Rosenberg. 
Tracy Rosenberg is an organizer and activist and the executive director of Media Alliance and the coordinator of the group Oakland Privacy, a San Francisco Bay anti-surveillance coalition which just received the 2019 Pioneer Award for Protecting Digital Freedom. She's also the creator and curator of the website PacificaInExile.org, where she's been bringing transparency to the ongoing conflicts and crises occurring within the Pacifica radio network. And here, we're going to be talking about and shedding light on the current crisis that's happening right now at WBAI, one of Pacifica's five sister stations in New York City, which is currently the object of a hostile takeover by Pacifica and KPFA in Berkeley. And if that sounds bizarre and confusing, you're not alone in feeling that way. I recorded this interview with Tracy Rosenberg three days ago on Tuesday, October 22nd. And just a quick note, in this interview, she refers to Pacifica's IED several times, which is short for Pacifica's new interim executive director, John Verniel, who has been spearheading this hostile takeover. Tracy, before we get into the WBAI takeover by KPFA and Pacifica and all the political machinations behind it, could you tell us about the mission of Pacifica in Exile, how it began, and your background and history within Pacifica? Oh, certainly. Um, when it comes to Pacifica in Exile, um, it was started as basically a transparency project which is consistent with my other work. I've been consistently an advocate for governmental and organizational transparency. Its attempt was basically to distribute to members of the Pacifica Foundation who happened to be interested information that would be helpful for them to understand some of the, you know, charges and countercharges that get thrown around in the Pacifica community. And it had an emphasis on revealing documents and papers and factual pieces of interest. In terms of my own background, I have probably been in and out of Pacifica-related concerns since about 1999. I was here in Berkeley working then as sort of the uh, administrative director of a nonprofit that was focused on alternative media outlets and, and protecting them. The name of that organization is Media Alliance, and I'm still the ED now, years later. So we certainly had an interest when an alternative media outlet in our neighborhood, in our neck of the woods, was experiencing this kind of existential conflict with their parent nonprofit. So I protested, and I went by the station, and actually I climbed a ladder over a bunch of riot police back in July of 19... 99 and got arrested and as a result of that you know you sort of start to feel like you have some some skin in the game regarding the outcome of what happens you know i got sort of you know drawn into the idea of protecting these outlets from what seemed like a voracious parent organization that was essentially being guided by money and the desire for control 
Um, so as you know, there was a multi-year struggle and eventually Pacifica was essentially rechartered on new grounds that called for sort of democratic engagement and for member control. Um, I stayed engaged with the process. I actually worked briefly at KPFA as a program coordinator and helped to facilitate their program council, which was supposed to be a sort of a listener programmer collaborative group that would sort of develop some program evaluation procedures and take a look at new programs and in theory revitalize the grid. And I did that work as a volunteer for a number of years until it sort of, what's the word, I guess, ran into some management resistance and sort of came to an end. I then made a decision in, what year was it? 2007 to actually run as one of the listener representatives for the national board. I was elected. I served on the local board for six years and on the national board for four years and for three years as the treasurer of the national board between 2011 and 2013. I left the national board in 2013 at the end of that year, I guess it was January 2014, and I've not been back ever since. But literally three months later, the executive director of Pacifica was essentially um, locking herself into the national office <laughs> under duress. You know, some very dramatic things happening. And it's important to say that dramatic things like this seem to happen in Pacifica on an ongoing basis. And I felt that it was important for there to be... a. I don't want to say an objective because I certainly have my own point of view, but I felt that it was important that there be sort of enhanced transparency and enhanced information delivery to the members. So I took it upon myself to do that. Wow. It sounds like you are the perfect person to ask about this history within Pacifica. How did Pacifica turn into this type of controlling and embattled organization with what appear, from my perspective, to be all these kind of dirty dealings and political machinations that just are reminiscent of what's going on in Washington these days and have been going on for quite some time. Well, I mean, one of the things that it's important to observe about Pacifica is that its mission statement is largely a community radio mission statement, like small stations have all over the country. But the reality of the physical assets that it contains, which are, you know, major market big signals, is that these are multi-million dollar assets. So you have a situation where you have kind of a significant push-me-pull-you between the sort of vision of bottoms-up, community-based information and arts and culture that is very much contained in the mission statement and, you know, the reality of an awful lot of money and a kind of, you know, a capitalistic professional orientation towards how multi-million dollar assets should be managed. And there's a definitely is and has been for a long time an inbuilt tension between those things. That is real. Um, you know, it's kind of a joke that the Pacifica stations are worth more dead than they are alive. 
But in most cases, this is absolutely true. The institution, when it does what it's supposed to do, which is run locally-based radio stations, is underfinanced and undercapitalized. But it is sitting on a pile of assets that are worth probably in excess of $100 million. So it's a weird situation. In terms of sort of the rancor, well, after the shutdown in Berkeley in 1999, basically the new set of bylaws were fundamentally designed to prevent that from being able to happen again. And on the one hand, it hasn't worked because it has happened to BAI, but it's also true that some remedies are being sought through the court, and it is the new bylaws that made it possible to go to court. In the pre-1999 situation, there was essentially members had nothing to say about anything, and it was entirely up to the board. That is somewhat different now. But that said, these new bylaws were designed to prevent that kind of thing. But there's many aspects to running a radio station, much less five of them, as everyone knows, and the bylaws were perhaps not as well thought out in terms of what would make the organization function well when there was not a takeover happening. So they were built very much with a broad inclusion and an almost endless set of checks and balances. And it makes it very hard to get anything done because what it comes down to is that there is an almost limitless set of entities that can say no and block and delay things. And it's very, very hard to say yes. So there is an inability to move ahead without building a very broad consensus. So when you're dealing with almost anything controversial or anything in which people have any strong feelings on either side of the issue, you end up with an awful lot of gridlock. So what you've ended up with is an organization that is not nimble, that can't move quickly, and that is suffering some because it has not entirely shifted its business model with the times, which has caused an awful lot of stress and an awful lot of people blaming each other for it and yelling at each other over it, when in fact they have each stopped any number of things that probably should have gone forward and would have made the radio station stronger and more stable. So that's the problem well, in a nutshell. that sounds even more like what's happening in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there are similarities. When you have that conversation about how democracy is the worst of all possible systems except all of the others, mm -hmm. you kind of have that situation where, yes, democracy is the fundamental backhaul against, you know, totalitarianism, which it is. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't produce an awful lot of gridlock and factionalism and nonsense yes. as it goes along. And, and your point about... Um, Pacifica being a large organization sitting upon a lot of assets, the larger the entity, the harder it is for a democratic system to work. Yeah, when you look at sort of collective models, what you generally are looking at is a fairly small group of individuals that know each other and trust each other and have some basic agreements in place and some shared goals. And when you try to sort of extend that out over five signal areas all across the country and literally hundreds of people, some of which have never met each other and have no particular reason to trust each other, and then you throw $100 million in assets on top of the pile, you can sort of see 
why the idealistic notion of collective decision-making is going to lead to some problems. Yep. And so two weeks ago, a situation occurred in New York with WBAI. And I would love for you to talk about what happened. Um, I went to your website. I've read all the articles you've read so far about it. And what a fascinating story. And it seems so ironic to me that something like this could happen to an organization with the kind of mission statement. Well, I guess I'm not clear on what the mission statement is and how it relates to this conflict that's happening, but it does... I think if Lou Hill were around, he he would be uh, pulling his hair out. Yeah, well, there's a cosmic question because believe it or not, this is probably unique in the history of nonprofits. The mission statement that was created in 1946 for the Pacifica Foundation has never been updated, not one word. What year is it now? 2019. And so the problem there is that the bindingness of the mission statement on the sense of the people who become involved in the organization is somewhat compromised by the fact that it's 70 years old and some of it is out of date. So people feel like they can kind of ignore it. And I have yelled for years, you need to update it so that you have a shared sense of mission right now that you all buy into because otherwise this whole thing, it doesn't have a rudder. But what it basically um, has a couple of basic parameters and one of them is that the job of the organization is to operate local radio stations that are community-based that order an outlet for the creative energies of the community and to essentially offer news and information that moves forward the cause of peace and mutual understanding. That's why it's called Pacifica. You know, it comes from a pacifist background, and the idea essentially is to utilize the community to engage in the kinds of conversation that will reduce conflict and war and all the dirty things that happen in the world. So that's the idea. That's the mission. Mm-hmm. How you interpret that in 2019, obviously you could have a couple of different versions, and people do. So there's a good argument for saying, well, what does that mean in 2019, and how exactly do you execute on it? But that said, New York, October 7th, an interim executive director who had been on the job for exactly two months flew into New York City. He went with a couple of individual board members who did not inform the other board members of their activities in advance or require any kind of authorization or anything like that. It just happened. And basically at around 8 o'clock in the morning, they marched on in. They demanded passwords to the computers. They demanded access to the bank accounts. They ripped the wires out so that the broadcasting equipment could not broadcast. In other words, they vandalized their own equipment. They had security individuals with them who had been hired from some sort of a firm. They told the entire staff of WBAI, except for one person, the membership director, that they were fired immediately. And they started piping in over the... uh, transmitter on top of four times square what was playing in Berkeley at that particular moment in time. They took over the website and put up an announcement that WBAI's 
programming was replaced by something called Pacifica Across America indefinitely. And that's what happened. So that was round one. Yes. Round two happened later that evening. The folks at WBAI who were literally in a state of shock, you know, the station staff, the listeners who rushed down to the station when they heard what was happening, didn't know what to do. But they got themselves together fairly quickly. And by the evening of October 7th, they had filed an emergency request for a temporary restraining order against Pacifica. I believe they filed it about 5 p.m. that afternoon or 4 p.m. that afternoon. And they requested an emergency hearing with a judge. So they literally went over to a judge's house at 9 o'clock in the evening. And that judge did sign the temporary restraining order, and then a huge court battle ensued that has not yet run its course, although it's starting to. Okay, there have been a number of back and forths that have occurred during this time. Could you walk us through them? I can, yes. I, I will try to focus on kind of the highlights because it has been changing almost every day. Mm-hmm. But three days after the TRO was issued on the evening of the 7th, and it's important to explain that temporary restraining order was an instruction from a judge that the takeover of BAI should be halted, the staff should not be fired, and the local programming should be restored, and that this should be in effect until the two parties come to court and there's some sort of hearing on what should happen going forward. That's why it's a temporary restraining order. Pacifica disobeyed it. The WBI folks went back to court, citing basically contempt of the previous order. A different judge upheld part of the order, basically saying, we can't fire all the staff with no notice. So that stays in place. But I, as a judge, am not comfortable saying what should be broadcast and what shouldn't be broadcast. So I'm vacating that part of the TRO. At that point, Pacifica, I guess alarmed or desperate to fire the staff or whatever, moved to bring the whole thing to federal court, basically saying that some random group of individuals was essentially trying to take over their station and prevent them from broadcasting what they wanted to broadcast, and therefore it was a matter of federal importance. Of course, the people taking over their station were their own employees, their own local station board, and their own members. But they phrased it as some kind of a hostile attack on our broadcasting outlet. So once something is remanded to federal court, there's a whole new proceeding and all the lawyers have to refile their papers. And the federal judge basically said, you know, I'm I'm interested in the substance of the case. But what I'm mostly interested in is why is this in federal court? So I would like both lawyers to issue briefs explaining to me the basis for this being in federal court. So they did, and on October 21st, a hearing was held in federal court, and the judge, after reviewing the briefs, announced that his decision was that there was no federal issue here whatsoever, and therefore he was remanding it back to the state court, and that since he was essentially yielding jurisdiction, he wasn't going to take any further action, but that in his opinion, WBAI was an important cultural asset for New York City, and that essentially what was going on here was what you would call a family fight or an interboard feud, and that he hoped that everybody would 
go to counseling and resolve it. So that was basically <laughs> the judge's statement. So now we are back in state court. And that existing TRO that is partially in place and partially vacated will have to be adjudicated. And I believe that will happen on Friday. Now, the reality is, of course, we're already at October 22nd. So for two weeks, WBAI has not been able to broadcast local content. So things have happened in New York City that have not been covered. You know, New Yorkers have been having to listen to programming that is not the programming that they paid for and supported and wanted. The fun drive that the station had scheduled for the month of October hasn't happened. So there's, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars that Pacifica does not have in addition to all of these legal costs that they've taken on. And, you know, the filings from the Pacifica lawyer, Foster Garvey is the firm, are long. So this costs them money. So there's, you know, there's a situation where certainly whatever else has happened Listeners in New York have not been served and will probably not forget what happened to them. And this is an organization that is relying on people choosing to donate. And secondly, a lot of expenses have been incurred. So there is both a loyalty problem and a financial problem that has been created, in my opinion. And both of these are critical issues for a listener-supported radio station. Um, the financial problems have been existing for many years now, so this will just be compounding an already bad situation. I think that's pretty clear. I don't think there's any doubt that there's a lot of dispute about the money stuff. And one of the things that Pacifica in Exile has always tried to do is be very transparent about the money and explain to people the basis for various charges and countercharges that they hear. There's been a lot of language that WBAI has been, you know, financially destroying the network, and that's the reason that these aggressive actions were kind of called for. And the reality, of course, is much more complicated. And I'm not trying to say that WBAI has not been operating at a loss. It has been. But basically all five of the Pacifica stations mostly do that. I mean, that's the status quo for all the stations. And a lot of WBAI's problems have been largely caused by the actions of others. So, when you say essentially, it's a, when you say yeah, the cause of others, what do you mean? WBAI doesn't own its own transmitter site, which in New York City is probably the case with almost every media outlet because New York real estate is insane, and there's literally very little open space. Instead of putting the transmitters in like a natural space, like a hill or a mountain, like you probably do in Vermont, and we do here in, here in California, KPFK's transmitter is up on Mount Wilson. Uh, KPFA's transmitter is up in the Claremont Hills here. In New York, it is on top of a skyscraper building. That's where the antenna is, because that's the only high spot that you can get. So these spots are in pretty high demand and there's a marketplace for them and they are not cheap. So there is a whole set of expenses associated with broadcasting in New York City that you don't have, for example, in California. Um, in 2001, as you guys probably know, the World Trade Center fell down and therefore there was one less skyscraper in Manhattan. And therefore the prices of transmitter space on top of these skyscrapers 
to a radio antenna is really skyrocketed. And it is a situation that was not ameliorated until some new skyscrapers were built some 10 years later. So in the middle of this, 2004-2005, WBAI's contract, which had been with the Empire State Building, lapsed. And at that moment in time, the owners of the Empire State Building realized that capitalism was on their side. They basically had the tallest building in New York City that had space for antennas. And they basically had a corner on the market. So they raised the prices dramatically. And they did it sort of in a hostage marketplace. Now, if it were me going back to 2005, I would have said, look, this is a community radio station. It only has so much money. Even if the choices are bad, we have to find some other way to broadcast because these prices are insane and a community radio station will never be able to afford them. And there was no nonprofit discount or anything like that. But instead, what Pacifica did is they signed a 15-year lease at completely insane prices. It started out at, once you put in the utilities, close to $400,000 per year. And by the time you got to the end of the contract, which would have been in 2020, it would have been three quarters of a million dollars every year, which at this point is like literally 50% of WBI's income. It was unaffordable. Pacifica signed it. They, they tied the station to this. So the station essentially had no money. It could barely afford payroll. It ran at a loss. And then essentially use that to say this station is dragging us down, but this station didn't make that choice, and it was a bad choice. So a lot of the BAI owes millions and millions of dollars is largely about difficulty paying that lease and finally defaulting on it, which is what they finally did in 20... uh, Well, it was... They started to default in 2015 after 10 years and finally got out of the lease in 2017 but with a lot of rhetoric. So how have WBAI's finances progressed since then? Well, they were able to find a tower on top of Four Times Square, which is a building in Times Square, not as tall as the Empire State Building, but tall enough. That's a building that went into the tower business some years ago. And to compare, the entire tower contract is about 150000 annually, 12000 a month plus some utilities. So essentially, they've been able to cut their transmitter costs by 75%, which is a much more sane way to try to run a community radio station. There is still some financial stress. There are obviously, you know, investments that could have been made in the station that were not made for many years so that... The equipment is old and run down, and they can't fix up their rental space the way that they would like. And there are a, there are a lot of uh, accumulated debts and, and, and problems, because basically all the money is going to pay for the transmitter. So there were other unpaid bills. So at this point, when we look at the financials, WBAI is posting still a loss every year, but it has gone down dramatically. And... In the past year, before this takeover, we do know that their membership rolls had gone up by 3%, which is not enormous, but it's an improvement. And in fact, none of the other Pacific stations had any increase at all. They went down. 
the Nielsen's have gone up somewhat substantially. And it appears that the station potentially had a little bit of room for growth, which it needs to do. And that's the exact moment that it was crushed kind of to death, which, you know, makes you question the uh, business wisdom of the Pacifica higher-ups, since apparently they can't recognize improvement when they see it. I'm talking with Tracy Rosenberg. She's the executive director of Media Alliance and the coordinator of the group Oakland Privacy, a San Francisco Bay anti-surveillance coalition, which just received the 2019 Pioneer Award for Protecting Digital Freedom. And she's the creator and curator of the website PacificaInExile.org. And we're talking about the current hostile takeover crisis at WBAI in New York City and the history behind it and Pacifica's running history of financial crises and internal political conflict. So from your perspective and your longer-term historical relationship with Pacifica and observing all of the ongoing crises and machinations at Pacifica and the different Pacifica stations, what do you think is going on with this WBAI takeover? What do you think is... Well, perhaps you, you could present what the outward justifications are and what you think is perhaps going on below the surface, if they're different. Sure, sure. I mean, I think it always helps to kind of frame the conversation like when this happened before what was going on because people are people and motivations often seem the same when you're in the same situation. And in 1999, when KPFA was shut down, there was a misplaced email. It was supposed to be sent to one person, but it was sent to some other person instead from a board member, you know, basically talking about shutting down stations, reprogramming them immediately, and selling off the licenses for the money. And uh, investing that money, at that point it was something about a string of southern stations, but investing that money basically elsewhere regarding KPFA. So that's why someone thought it was a good idea to invade a station and shut it down back then. So now we sort of fast forward, and here we are now to October 7th. And what was presented as the alternative Pacifica across America, to be fair, doesn't make a whole lot of sense because we're broadcasting programming from other stations, which is California-centric because those stations are in California and they are local stations in California. So New Yorkers, that audience, really isn't getting anything that's specific to their region or even close to their region. Um, The transmitter cost remains each month and a certain amount of maintenance because according to the FCC you have to pay I think two employees so you've got about $30,000 in fixed costs but you don't really have the ability to fundraise in the New York City area because you're meeting the needs of New York area audiences so this whole Pacifica across America marketing argument makes almost no sense because you have fixed costs and no way to pay for them so if anything it at least on paper, looks like a way to lose more money rather than make any. Because I am sure that if in Vermont we piped in programming from Texas that was basically based on local Texas stuff, the interest level would be limited, right? Mm-hmm. 
I mean, maybe one or two programs you might like. But in general, you would not be motivated to open up your pocketbook so you could keep hearing this Texas programming. Right. Our, it's, our, you know, it's, our listener community would be in an uproar about what's going on and why should we pay for this crap, essentially. Especially if you had just given 50 or $100 to last year to the programming that you did want to support, which is now all gone, right? Right. You know, it's a breaking of faith with the audience, and it's an inability to create a new audience because you're not really giving them anything that's specific to where they are and who they are and what's in front of them. And New York City, of all places, and I'm a native, so I can say this, it's an arrogant place. It thinks that it's the center of the world. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in New York City, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea for New Yorkers that what happens in New York is not of significance is not going to fly. No. <laughs> so being that the replacement idea is so substantively ludicrous, it appears fairly straightforward that that's not the actual plan long term. And then you start to look at, well, you, you replace the local station with this national, nationally derived programming that has fixed costs that it can't pay, that is going to fail. And then, of course, you don't really have any choice, do you? Because what's there isn't working. You've dismantled the local infrastructure. Because obviously, I mean, ripping apart the broadcasting equipment and telling the landlord to find some other tenant is a very clear indication that you're not preserving the infrastructure for local broadcasting there. You are physically taking it apart. So it cannot be restored. That's the goal. So if you can't go back to the original, what you're proposing doesn't make any sense, then really, like, your hands are tied, right? You have to, you have to look for a buyer. Um, Pacifica's bylaws, as I said, were designed to prevent this kind of thing. So it gives the members the right to sort of veto any sort of sale or dissolution of assets by vote. So you need to be able to make a pretty compelling case that you have no other choice in order to get past that. So this is basically, I think, a way of, you know, how do we get the money out of that license? Well, we have to create a crisis so that... Essentially, there is no other organizational choice, and we can convince the members who own these licenses that they have to sell it. And who are those members who own this license? Everybody who has donated $25 or more in the past year, which is a very generous description, and it is what Pacifica did. So it is the donors. So they, know, they would no longer have any stake in this, so... It's a damned if I do and damned if I don't kind of a choice to make, isn't it? I think pretty much so. And I think that, that most of this was essentially to clear the way to take the money out of that, out of that license, to recapitalize the organization. Because, for example, the other four station managers, you know, got on board and said they supported this whole thing. Well, why would they do that? They don't want their own programming terminated. They don't want themselves fired. So what do they want here? You know, why is there no solidarity towards a sister station? There's no solidarity towards a sister station because its carcass can capitalize their own station. That's the reason. Wow. That's nasty. Well, yes, it doesn't make for pleasant water fountain conversations. I'm or, stunned. Uh, I'm 
I'm absolutely stunned. I mean, New York City is is a huge major market. I would think that Pacifica would want to maintain that signal, the station in New York. My take on it is if you are a broadcaster in your heart, you always want to broadcast to the biggest media market in the country. If you are a journalist at heart, you want to get information out in the biggest media market in the country. And, you know, we have an election in less than a year that is crucial and that is going to change the whole direction of our country one way or the other. So, I mean, it, it is a time when you want to be on air and when you want to be on air with the freedom and autonomy to provide information that can't be gotten in other places, right? I mean, it's really the time that your mission should be first and foremost. So what we're looking at in Pacifica, it seems to me, as I said, is a certain kind of abandonment of mission and, you know, a a scenario where dollars and cents is making people sort of lose their footing and lose their ground and not remember why they are there. And that is when collective decision-making as a whole totally breaks down. But a collective decision was made at least a certain collective. You say that the directors or the managers of the four other sister stations agreed upon this. Well, um, whether they were consulted beforehand, who knows? But when asked to issue a statement, they issued a collective statement as the four managers after the fact, saying that basically we support this. Now, to be fair, these are, you know, employees with contracts that can be terminated, and they work directly under the supervision of the IED who executed this. So there might have been a certain amount of coercion involved. Who knows? And people always make sort of tactical choices like, my boss wants me to do this, and if I don't do it, will I get fired? So, you know, maybe it's a voluntary statement, and maybe it was not so voluntary. I'm not sure. And I can't say. Wasn't but I will say that if it was voluntary, it is certainly opposite to any other sort of broadcasting professional who was not in a position to benefit financially. Because certainly, you know, any other community radio staff or management that has weighed in on the issue has said, this is terrible. It's a tragedy. I understand that an engineer from W. PFW was ordered to accompany them to WBA to help in the shutdown of the station? Yes. A uh, individual who had been doing some engineering work on contract for WPFW was put on shortly before the WBAI event as a national employee and was brought along and did the engineering work to pipe in the California programming. Again, I want to be fair. This is an employee with a paycheck and a boss. And person had to make the calculation if I, you know, insubordination usually results in getting fired. So I don't know what their sentiments are. I don't know what their financial circumstances are. I don't know, you know, what, what calculation they had to make. But yes, they did assist. What I heard was that when asked, he said that he was following orders. Well, that is the Nuremberg defense. Yes. Um, Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So 
Pacifica has, as you, you, you went back and you, you talked a bit about Pacifica's earlier history, there's a long history of these kind of events. KPFA was almost shut down and sold off at one point, from what I hear. Mm-hmm. Was that back in 1999 that that happened? Yes, 1999, all of the station staff were locked out for a period of, I think it was about five weeks or so, in the summer of 1999, and programming was piped in from Houston. (laughs) Wow, history repeats itself. Very similar playbook, and of course, the ridiculous thing is that some of the people behind this were in opposition and fighting that back then, so things change. And people find ways to become what they used to criticize. But yes, the playbook is remarkably similar. At that time, the board was entirely self-selected. Members did not have membership voting rights, and the board was essentially not recallable or accountable by the members. And so it was a three-year struggle. Pacifica eventually unlocked the doors of the station, but it was a three-year struggle to get it permanently turned around. Because of the newer Democratic bylaws, it looks like it will not take that long to reverse the situation this time around. It'll be a matter of weeks or months, not years. But that said, the damage that gets done, you know, one day you've got significant financial damage and listener loyalty damage and publicity damage. And every day that goes on, there is more and more and more. So for the general cause of sort of strengthening all of the stations and the network and the brand and moving forward and doing new and exciting things, it's like the opposite, right? Because it's damaged and you have to clean it up. Mm-hmm. Now, I've also heard that there's been a shift in the programming that's been happening at KPFA in particular, that there's a shift in a kind of political ideology perhaps behind the programming direction of the station? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, although I think it's been subtle for a number of years. There's always been a certain amount of viewpoint diversity on KPFA within the spectrum of liberal to progressive to radical left, right? People are at different points on that pendulum. Mm -hmm. And I think that's healthy for a community radio station. But... There has certainly been tension between folks, you know, at different points in that pendulum about you're right, no, I'm right, and this kind of thing. And I think that works when there is a significant amount of representation on air across the spectrum. But what I think people are sensing, and which I I think is true that that push-me-pull-you has become a much more pitched battle for control, and that the liberal or neoliberal aspects, which are the less progressive side of that spectrum, you know, as opposed to the radical left, has been getting increasingly aggressive about dominating the primetime schedule, about taking a much more significant percentage of the time, and about being ungenerous with news and information shows that attempt to operate on the other side of the spectrum in terms of hassling them, giving them no primetime access and a lot of sort of interpersonal difficulties that make it hard to program and hard to feel welcome and hard to feel a part of the community. And also that the branding of the station is sort of, you know, 
settling itself firmly in the liberal but not too radical side of progressive politics. And that there's, in this area, at least, because this is Northern California, right? Which is the bluest of the blue and beyond blue and into other shades. There's a sense that, or at least a significant chunk of the audience, that they're not hearing things on KPFA that they expect to and want to because the ideological spectrum is being kind of narrowed and a number of, you know, perspectives and shows aren't as present as they used to be. And I think that's frustrating for people because donors are donors. They give you money as a radio station because they want to hear things that you're programming, right? That you're broadcasting. So when you start to sideline or to marginalize those voices, it becomes more and more frustrating for the people that were a part of your community because they wanted to hear those voices because that kind of news and information was important to them. And I think because they felt welcome in the station's community because those voices were there and now they feel less welcome. You know, they feel like they're not wanted. And because when you're talking about radical politics, say, you know, on the Green Party side of things or the DSA or whatever, those are points of view that, you know, don't have much space anywhere else in the media, you're taking away one of the few welcoming spaces and making it less welcoming. I have heard people that work at the station, you know, saying that they're afraid of a Green Party takeover of KPFA. Like, what the heck does that even mean? And who is saying that, and what do they mean by a Green Party takeover? Well, that was a long-term programmer who mostly does literary and cultural programming. And they were complaining because a number of folks that were running for the local station board as delegates had affiliations with the Green Party. And that there was some sort of an attempt to, by the Green Party to take over the station and turn it into some sort of Green Party megaphone. And the problems with that is that, you know, whatever you think of the Green Party, and it's just, you know, one set of groups on that part of, of the spectrum, you know, Third parties on the left and progressive folks are supposed to be a significant part of the station's audience. And those that are trying to pull the politics of the country much further to the left should be the station's audience and should be welcome, whether they're trying to do it through third parties or the progressive wing, the Democratic Party or whatever. But the people that are pushing on the side to shift things from this sort of right-center balance that we have really should be the station's audience and should really be welcome. And the idea that there's some kind of hostile takeover force really shows you the narrowing of the spectrum and the idea that there's an in-group and there's an out-group. And if you're in the out-group, you're not really welcome here. And that out-group is on the left edge of the spectrum. So I think that's true. And, you know, and you hear something like that. And if that's your political persuasion, it, it doesn't feel like your home station. It doesn't feel like your voice. It feels like I'm not wanted here. This is a fight. And there's no reason why we should be fighting with the left. We're supposed to, you know, we're a left radio station. You know, what is this? So are the people on the neoliberal side of this kind of hostile takeover or hostile hogging of the airwaves and control of the station, are they ideologically motivated or are they just financially motivated because they believe that there's more money to be extracted from the moderate democratic side of the political spectrum? It's a good question, and it's always hard to talk about people's motivations. I mean, you know, in, in my heart of hearts, I don't know. 
I think it's a combination, and I think like anything, it's a coalition of people that fall on both sides of that spectrum. I don't think there's any doubt that to some people this is the financially responsible thing to do because that's where the money and the power is, and if you want to grow as a station, you have to serve the needs of people with the money, or there won't be any money. I certainly think that there are people who are sort of, you know, committed to the fact that third-party politics is essentially the path of doom and death, and that those, you know, political tendencies should not be encouraged, and we need to maintain this two-party system. And defeat Trump. Yeah, sure, sure. There are definitely people that feel that any discussion of anything but supporting a Democratic candidate exactly who it is, no matter who it is, you know, any talk of anything other than that is basically, at this point, treason, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm as anti-Trump as they come, and it would be pretty hard for me this year not to vote for the Democratic candidate, although I have certainly voted for third-party candidates in the past. But whatever your opinion is on that, it's a conversation that people should be able to have. It shouldn't be a situation where it's a verboten point of view you know, treated as something akin to hate speech or anti-American sentiments. That's just ridiculous. So certainly there is an element of sort of the true believer that says what I believe is only what should be broadcast because anything else is verboten. So there's some of that. I firmly believe that the dollar signs are a huge motivation and that, as I said, It's very hard when there's millions of dollars of assets for those not to play a role in the decision-making process that goes on. Because running a community radio station with $20 million in the bank is a very different thing than running a community radio station with $75,000 in the bank and a bunch of bills and a fund drive coming up, which is the reality now, right? And so people envision a whole different future for themselves as broadcasters if they could just get past this ugly moment of taking one of their sister stations, chopping it up into bits, and selling it for scrap metal. You know, if they could just get through it, what lies on the other side is beautiful. And that may be, but a bad means to an end doesn't make it okay. And combining that with the changing and the programming and, and the shifting of Pacifica steadily to the right, that's a disturbing trend. Moving Radically, I would say radically against the original concept of Pacifica Radio. Yeah, certainly moving against the role that Pacifica Radio has played mm-hmm. in the latter part of the 20th century. Because if you look at what Pacifica was doing in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, maybe not so much after that, it was really a watering hole for the very left in- intelligentsia that was in many ways ahead of their time, not commonly understood, but became the textbooks for the generations that came after them because they were really exploring exciting alternative ideas that were very forward-thinking. And so Pacifica was essentially serving as kind of a think tank for all of the social change movements that came into being in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the art that was on the fringes and supported these movements. So to some degree, it was a movement engine for social justice. Mm-hmm. I'm you know, so glad you're bringing about this up. The, 
Yeah, well, we talk about the Pacifica archives as, you know, as a valuable repository. And they are because they have things like James Baldwin's early appearances when nobody was listening to him. And, you know, Angela Davis before she was famous and these kinds of things. So, you know, it is really a culture trove of what has become American history, but recorded as it, as it was happening. Mm -hmm. And when Pacifica fails to play that role, A, that history doesn't become recorded as it was happening, and B, social change movements are greatly impoverished because they don't have that kind of service anymore. Exactly, and we're living at a time when we need social change more than ever. Well, it certainly seems so. So when you have the sort of anti-Trumpers come on and say, you know, the world is coming to an end, it's an apocalypse, look at this guy out there, and it's sort of like, yes, this is the moment that Pacifica should be at the forefront, recording the resistance in all of its strength. And instead, it's basically what? It's walking into WBAI and ripping the microphones out of the wall. And consolidating power with the neoliberal model, which is already completely represented by NPR and, and some of the other mainstream networks. Exactly. I think if you did an inventory, for example, of folks that appeared on KPFA, you know, primetime programs as interview subjects over the past year, and you did a comparison with you know, a fairly liberal NPR program somewhere that also was sort of bringing on authors and pundits and stuff, I think you would find a significant amount of crossover. And, you know, somebody needs to sit down and do that. It's not me. And I haven't done it. But that's my sort of anecdotal feeling. And the reality is that that kind of redundant programming, while it may not be unpleasant to listen to, it is leaving the role that Pacifica is supposed to be playing basically vacant and absent because Pacifica should be having on the people that are never on NPR. Not yet, because nobody's really heard of them. But they are doing amazing and exciting things and writing the textbooks of the future and, you know, painting the art that will be shown in museums in 50 years. And doing the grassroots organizing on the ground that will be taught in the history books of, you know, 2050 or 2060. And again, if they're just replaying the sort of NPR acceptable stuff at this point in time, then they're not doing that. And my argument has always been when I was talking about sort of the mission and program evaluation and all these things is that uniqueness kind of needs to be a value. Because if you want people to give you money, you have to be able to explain to them what you're doing that's different than what everybody else is doing. You know, why this needs to be supported. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the unique thing that you are providing? Exactly. That is. And in the competition for charitable dollars, you're probably not going to win. And the reality is that the Pacifica stations in their markets are not winning. If you look at California, for example, and I'll talk about the East Coast a bit too, but I know less about the competition. I mean, here, KPFA is the Pacifica station. KQED is the NPR station. It does almost no local programming. It's pretty much all syndicated. And it literally is like 20 times the size. If you look at Los Angeles, the uh, stations down there that are public, KPCC and uh, KCRW, they're huge. And KPFK, the Pacifica station, which has a signal larger than both of them, is 
minuscule by comparison. And I think that if you look at the East Coast, you will see similar patterns. And so the question there is, well, you know, why isn't there any support, any significant financial support coming to the Pacifica stations? And it's largely because they're pallid imitators of what's already there to a significant extent. And they don't have to be. It's a choice. And it's a choice that financially isn't making that much sense. This is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. I'm talking with Tracy Rosenberg. Tracy is the executive director of Media Alliance and the creator and curator of the website PacificaInExile.org. And we're talking about the current hostile takeover crisis at WBAI in New York City and the history behind it and Pacifica's running history of financial crises and internal political conflict. So back when Pacifica was more of the radical station that it has been, was it raising more funds or was it just cheaper to run? I wish I could say that the money was pouring in in the 50s and 60s and 70s. No, it wasn't. Although the WBAI of the 1960s to 1970s did make a significant amount of money, because at that time it was the voice of of the counterculture. And certainly, if you look at it, if you convert it into modern-day dollars, there have been stronger performances in the past. But largely, the financial structure was much smaller, less infrastructure, less bureaucracy, less paid staff, more volunteer energy, and the costs were not as high. Mm -hmm. And I think largely if you are going to do what we're talking about doing, that's the more intelligent model for it. And then basically you can add capacity, but you don't establish the infrastructure first and then poorly capitalize it. Mm -hmm. And also recognize and, and acknowledge, humbly acknowledge that this is a public service. It's not meant to generate large amounts of money the way NPR or commercial networks do. That was always the intent. The only demand that Lou Hill made when he set it up was, and he thought a great deal about sort of what he was building, and it's important to sort of say that Pacifica predates NPR. There was no NPR. Right. So he was basically inventing non-commercial radio and what it would be and how it would work in the 40s because commercial radio drove him crazy and he wanted something else. He came to the conclusion, well, the only way I could have something else is if I build it myself. So he was conceptualizing this long before he, he was able to get his hands on the first license, which was KPFA. And he wrote and he thought, and basically his idea was that largely this was, in fact, a volunteer project. It was an outlet for the creative energies of the community. He said that specifically and carried it over to the mission statement. And that basically he wanted people in the community to essentially skill share, to share their knowledge, their life experiences, and the things that they were doing, and the expertise that they had developed, and bring it to the airwaves and share it, and ask people to support them in doing it. But the idea was that the stations would be self-sustaining in their operations. Not that they would make a profit, not that they would make enough money to buy a building and invest in real estate, 
but simply that they would be self-sustaining. So we have come to kind of a situation where, A, we're not self-sustaining because the stations are operating at a loss, and mostly do all of the time, and that a large infrastructure has been built up that needs to be paid for and which the stations and the network are struggling to pay for, and they're so determined not to take it down a few notches that essentially they have turned to things like cannibalizing each other in order to survive. And the question there is, you know, what kind of survival is that? Um, If you really literally have to sell off one of your stations for scrap metal in order to keep the others going, and maybe you have to think a little about the set of circumstances that got you to that point and do something so that you can, in fact, operate self-sustaining radio stations. And, you know, maybe that means growth, and maybe it means contraction, and maybe it means some of both. But the goal is to be self-sustaining, and the goal is to operate as much broadcasting of local content from local communities that you serve as possible. And it seems to me that as of late, Pacifica has largely failed to make that challenge. That's not what they're doing. Hmm. So I have a couple of questions to ask in regard to the work that you're doing. I'm very curious to know if or how many other Pacifica stations or people involved are reaching out to you to talk about and to find out about what's happening at Pacifica. Well, Pacifica in Exile has an ongoing email list of about 3,000 folks that I send stuff out to regularly. I did it pretty much, well, maybe not weekly, but a couple of times a month between 2014 and 2017, which is a long time. And then it sort of went on hiatus after the Empire State Crisis was resolved. It seemed like things had kind of quieted down, and I was a bit pooped. So I let it go for a while, and then, of course, this recent set of events has started it going again. I will say that, you know, a couple hundred people have subscribed to the newsletter in the past couple of weeks. There's a steady flow of emails and phone calls and interviews and those kinds of things. So I would say there's a fairly robust informational process. And again, a lot of what it is is, look, I've been trying to figure out what's going on. And I hear all these things, all these charges and countercharges, and I can't make sense out of it. You know, and I want to understand because these stations are or have been important to me in my life, and I care about them. But I don't know what actions to take, and I don't feel like I truly understand why the things that are happening are happening and who's at fault. And I feel badly because these are people that, you know, care about a community institution that's worth caring about. They put their money on the line, most of them, and they don't know what to do to save or preserve what they care about. Have you heard any coverage of this current crisis or issue on Democracy Now! or Tom Hartman's show? I have not. You know, there has been a significant amount of coverage in the New York independent press, the Independent and Counterpunch and The Nation and those kinds of outlets have covered it, which is wonderful. My understanding is, based on a direct quote from a programmer, was that the condition for allowing oneself to be piped in 
to WBAI to Beyond Pacifica across America was that you were not to mention current events at Pacifica, the takeover of WBAI, the fact that you were being piped in, the shutdown, any of it. That information came from the programmers who do what used to be WBAI's hacking show. It's called Off the Hook. It's a good show. And they talk about tech and security and privacy and all things cyber. And they put something up on YouTube where they talked about the shutdown of BAI. And one of the things that they said, and it's, you know, it's, it's a successful program with a significant audience, is they said, well, we were offered the opportunity to be on Pacifica across America, that they would broadcast us on, you know, on shutdown BAI, but that we had to promise not to talk about the fact that BAI was shut down, and we said no. So then, so I would assume that that gag order, as it were, is being applied to all of the programs that are being broadcast. So that would mean that Amy Goodman and Tom Hartman are acquiescing to that gag order. Uh, that's my guess. I mean, it might be that they would not have chosen to have done so anyway. They may feel like it's no skin off their back. I don't know. But yes, it means that they are acquiescing to that gag order because that is clearly a condition. Wow. And I believe that a letter has been written to them by some WBAI former listeners basically saying, why, you know, why, why are you being complicit? And I don't know that there's been a response, but I think they've been asked the question. Right. Why the radio silence? Yeah, because, you know, you have the airwaves, you have the ability to speak about injustice. That's, that's the gift, right? Right. And if this can happen at WBAI, obviously it can happen at any of the other sister stations next time they run into this problem. And it sounds from the previous history that if they keep doing things the way they've been doing it, it's only a matter of time before that happens again. Yeah, well, that's why the uh, the managers of the other four stations signing on to that letter seems to me so insanely short-sighted. I mean, one of the stations, WPFW in Washington, is also deeply financially troubled. And in similar ways to BAI has not contributed their fair share of joint expenses for years and years and years. So they're obviously in a position to be targeted in exactly the same way. And it should be obvious. I mean, I believe they shorted the national office of, you know, their share of, of shared expenses by like a quarter million dollars in the past two years. So what are they even talking about? I mean, that's the excuse that was used to shut down BAI. So yeah, I think it's, it's extremely short-sighted thinking. And as I said, I think it's the fantasy that if I just get through this ugly, unpleasant moment, then someone is going to drop $10 million or more on my station and I'll never have to worry about fundraising again. We'll have an endowment. And that somehow doing that is an excuse for what's happening now. So we'll just sort of, you know, blunder our way through this, get the money, and then everything will be okay. I mean, that's my take on it. You know, I, I could be wrong. You can never entirely tell what's inside of other people's heads, but that's my guess. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, some folks who are favoring the shutdown have over the years said something to that effect. Because, you know, a financial struggle is a financial struggle, and it's debilitating, and it's tiring. It's probably always going to be like that in independent community media. We don't do this to get rich. So, I mean, you have to sort of accept that that's part of what you're doing if you choose to work in this sector or to be in this sector. You're going to struggle for money. 
but I think there's, you know, there's a dream there that maybe we could do something and it may be a little unsightly, but once it's all over with, we'll be on easy street forever. Hmm. So there are over 200 smaller affiliated Pacifica stations scattered across the country, of which ours mm-hmm. is one. What are the consequences to these stations of what's happening at Pacifica? Well, what we call the affiliated stations are basically stations that participate in a content service that Pacifica offers uh, through Audioport, which is a radio, you know, an audio distribution system. And basically they pay a fee every year to be able to access ready-made content from Audioport. And basically what's on Audioport is a number of highly produced programs and series that are made at the five Pacifica stations and it can essentially be downloaded and either simulcast or, you know, put in the vault for for other times. And what this allows is it allows, you know, smaller stations that, for example, Naomi Klein would never come and visit, but they could potentially, you know, pull out this archive and broadcast an hour-long interview with Naomi Klein about climate change on the occasion of some climate change event. In other words, it gives them sort of a library of programming that they can choose from. And Audioport is not the only service that provides these kinds of things, but in theory, it does so from the left-wing Pacifica perspective. So for community radio stations that are looking for that kind of content, it really helps them to be able to affiliate with Pacifica because it fills out their program contents at a fairly low cost to themselves. And if there is, for example, like special programming of a convention or a presidential debate or like the impeachment hearings, they can just grab a hold of that content, which they could never produce by themselves. Or they could, but it would be difficult. So, I mean, in terms of the current instability, I mean, obviously, if the whole Pacifica Foundation collapses, they don't, they don't really have access to that anymore. And, of course, New York, as we pointed out, important part of the country. And if you don't have local content relating to things that are happening in the New York City area, that's a loss especially for affiliate stations that are in that geographic part of the country. Like there are some affiliates up in like Portland, New York, and Ithaca, and Buffalo, and rural Pennsylvania, where that content really has value, right? Because <laughs> their listeners are interested. They're, they're part of that part of the country. So I would basically say that it, you know, it, it creates a situation where the amount of content available is kind of, impoverished and it also you know for the sector as a whole um community radio and independent community in general you know needs to make a values argument to its audience about you know what it has to offer that they can't get elsewhere and that these institutions need to be supported so when you have one of the biggest and most public community radio networks in the country really the only one that's not government or, or corporate owned, sort of, you know, prominently flailing and attacking itself in public and falling apart, it seems. I don't think it helps the cause of community media in general for all of us. I don't think it makes the value statement that what we're doing is important and valuable and successful and needs to grow. Mm-hmm. So if people want to keep up with what's happening at Pacifica, how can they find your website? Well, it's not named in any sort of complicated way. The name of the sort of publication is Pacifica in Exile. 
and the website is pacificainexile.org. One word, all small letters. If you Google Pacifica in Exile, it comes up right away. The uh, historical origin of the name is that particular incident that spurred me to start writing it, which was a recently fired Pacifica ID, basically hiding in her office after she felt she had been unfairly fired. So it seemed to me that the spirit of Pacifica was a little in exile at the moment. Um, But that's the name. There is an archive that goes all the way back to 2014 and a document library and lots of stuff that people can look at. There's an email contact. You can get in touch with me at pacificainexile at gmail.com. And we will be posting, you know, updates periodically. You can sign up for a mailing list. You should get an email at this point about once a week. Sometimes when there's court stuff, it comes a bit more frequently. And they're generally about a page, so you can just sort of scan it and click on things if you're interested in finding out more. Okay, well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. You are full of information, and I appreciate the work that you're doing very much. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, and yes, I I enjoyed the conversation as well. Thank you. And be well, and good luck to Pacifica, NWBAI in particular, and all of us. Absolutely, and I'm looking forward to the restoration of BAI, which I think we will see in the next 30 days. I'm certainly hoping for it. I am too, and that's my sense, and then it'll just be a matter of when the ugly head of this beast pops up again and tries this all over again. Well, I'll definitely make a pitch to your listeners. I know that Vermont is not very close to any particular Pacifica station, but we all know people in New York and Washington and Houston and and the Bay Area and Los Angeles. And if you know good folks, you know, encourage them to get involved with their local Pacifica station and Help us make it better, because, yeah, we, we do have to tame this beast. Yes, sure. and many of us up here are refugees from New York. I, Growing up in New York City, my father listened to WBAI, and I spent a year out in Oakland and driving as a courier, so I got to listen to KPFA all day long, almost every day. This was back in 1991 and 1992, and mm-hmm. what a fabulous, rich experience it was. The the quality of the local programming was fabulous, and it was wild and woolly and fiercely independent. Yes, I hear that from people all of the time. They tell me what an amazing influence it was on them as they were growing up, and that they don't think they would be the people that they eventually became without it. And I think what I want more than anything else is I want it to be that again for the young people today and those that will be coming after us. That's my hope. Yes, mine too. So may it be so. And again, thank you so much and be well. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Tracy Rosenberg. Tracy is an organizer and activist and the executive director of Media Alliance and the coordinator of the group Oakland Privacy, a San Francisco Bay Area 
Anti-Surveillance Coalition, which just received the 2019 Pioneer Award for Protecting Digital Freedom. And she's the creator and curator of the website PacificaInExile.org, which is following and reporting on the current takeover crisis at WBAI in New York City. And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week. There's something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down There's battle lines being drawn Nobody's right if everybody's wrong Young people speaking their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind Every time we stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down What a field day for the heat and people in the street Singing songs and they're carrying signs Mostly say hooray for our side It's time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going It will creep It starts when you're always afraid Step out of line The man come and take you away We better stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going We better stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going We better stop Now, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going We better stop touch of your lips, dear, but much more for the touch of your whips, dear. You can raise welts like nobody else as we dance to the masochism tango. Say our love is a flame, not an ember. Say it's me that you want to dismember. Blacken my eye, set fire to my tie As we dance to the masochism tango 
at your command Before you here I stand My heart is in my hand Yeah <laughs> It's here that I must be My heart entreats Just hear those savage beats And go put on your cleats And come and trample me is hard as stone or mahogany that's why i'm in such exquisite agony my soul is on fire it's a flame with desire which is why i perspire when we tango you caught my nose in your left castanet love i can feel the pain yet love Every time I hear drums And I envy the rose That you held in your teeth Love With the thorns underneath Love Sticking into your gums Your eyes cast a spell that bewitches The last time I needed twenty Stitches to sew up the gash you made with your lash as we dance to the masochism tango. Bash in my brain and make me scream with pain, then kick me once again and say we'll never part. I know too well I'm underneath your spell.